ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Many regional communities are worried about the diminishing number of emergency service volunteers. In regional Victoria, SES members are warning that their communities could potentially be at risk due to low volunteer numbers. This is Emergency Services Commissioner Andrew Crisp speaking with Raphael Epstein earlier this week on ABC Radio Melbourne. We do have a project underway at the moment that's that's looking at volunteers, you know, primarily within the SES and, and CFA and about what more we can do to, to attract and retain volunteers. We know volunteers don't want, want to be paid. There could be ways to sort of um, incentivise, so, you know, whether that was in relation to vehicle registration, you know, it could be in terms of, we're talking about the volunteers but what about employers in relation to to their taxes so there are there have been a number of um suggestions that have been explored and and can and need to be further explored so numbers in general for emergency service volunteers are low so why and what are the short-term and the long-term impacts of those low numbers whether it be how you respond to a disaster or to the connection to community that you get when you volunteer good morning my name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host today, joining you from ABC Shepparton, Nick Healy. Nick, what do we stand to lose if we don't have enough frontline emergency service volunteers? So much. We stand to lose so, so much. Anyone living in a regional area will tell you that those emergency services volunteers, no matter what they're doing, you know, the phrases you will hear are the lifeblood of a community. They're the ones you trust. They're the ones you turn to. They're the holders of a great deal of knowledge and understanding as well. It, this isn't just about boots on the ground. This is very much about people who know their region, know the complications, know the people in them. Without those volunteers coming from those areas, we lose a lot. I spent some time in my hometown of Maui just a few mm. weeks ago and spoke to a, a lifelong friend whose dad has been a, a CFA volunteer for 50 years, Nick. Wow. 50 years. And he spoke about how short the numbers are and how worried he was about the numbers. And red tape and bureaucracy comes into this conversation. And I know that a lot of our guests today will talk about, has it just got too hard to volunteer? But what will stay with me was when he spoke about the short numbers that they have and the chance that you have to then connect in particular with younger men and to mentor with younger men and to be able to have that generational knowledge passed down. And there was a real sadness around what is lost as a community and that social fabric that you have when you volunteer for something like the SES or the CFA. And then on top of it, you're actually physically keeping people safe as well. I remember back in WA interviewing some people who had won awards uh, for their volunteer work as the Fireys. Three generations. Yes. Three generations had stood up together to accept these awards. That's what it meant to their family. It can be a generational thing. Men and women passing on that knowledge uh, for a lot of people who might be I guess, struggling to find their place at a younger age in a community, maybe at the risk of getting in a bit of trouble. Something like this can be a yeah. life changer. It's not for everyone, but it can be a very big deal for some people who come through it. And we'll go back and say that opportunity to be part of something bigger 
really changed my life around. There is a worry that we lose that. It's not just safety, as you said. It is the community aspect as well. So have you thought twice about volunteering at your local emergency services? Maybe you have over the years and now you've stepped away. What's stopping you from volunteering? And maybe you live in a community, I know, Nick, where you are in Shepparton, you'd have concerns. You've just gone through floods and there's concerns already around the corner, uh, around fires. You might live up in the Dandenongs. There are so many areas where it feels like the next disaster is just around the corner. And whether or not we have the numbers of volunteers to keep our community safe. And what do we stand to lose? So do you volunteer for your local emergency services, whether it be from the SES or the CFA? And is your community struggling for numbers and does that worry you? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Rochelle Hunt with you in Melbourne. Nick Healy joining you from ABC Shepherd and already texts coming in on this, Nick. This that says it's partly that people now have second jobs and no spare time is this text. And another says, just get rid of the red tape. It's not about incentives. We don't want incentives. We don't want all of the red tape. So that idea of it just making it too hard for people to volunteer. This is really important. People are giving up time to volunteer. It is a very big deal. You know, Australia has an amazing run when it comes to volunteer numbers across everything that people can put their hand up for. We should be really proud. Emergency services are a step above. You are volunteering in some cases to be putting your own life on the line. You should be able to do that easily. The point about other people needing jobs, you know, it is hard at the moment. I think people are having to make some tough decisions to cut back on their volunteering time in just because of where household budgets are going, where they're going in terms of that income. It can be really tough. I think uh, I think we are seeing... I guess, a pullback from volunteer numbers on that aspect as well. Keith's called from Central Victoria. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. How are you? Well, do you volunteer Um, for emergency services? I'm a member of the SES, but I'm not an active member anymore because of the stupidity of the bureaucracy that that incorporates the SES. Our members, a couple of our members have been stood down. One for using his initiative when a, a large tree blocked a major highway between... Melbourne, uh, between Mildura and Brisbane, it would have closed the highway down for hours to get it off. So he went, used the initiative, went to the farm closest where he was employed, got a front-end loader, moved the tree off the road and consequently saved heaps of drama. Mm-hmm. And he was told he was that he shouldn't down, have done he that? He was stood oh. down because he wasn't wearing his SES uniform while he was in his employer's vehicle. So he has subsequently resigned. His wife used to do the radio operator for the unit. She has also resigned. I won't go near the unit because bureaucracy has virtually targeted our unit. At one stage, we were out at a, a fatal, and the controller came out from the major town, and he stood there and asked me, who would you get rid of at this unit? to make it a better better unit. So, Keith, when you started and when you had the initial idea to volunteer, when it's working well, when there isn't the bureaucracy, what makes volunteering for something like the SES worthwhile? You get a group of people that are like-minded and they want to help the community. We had a good team and then it, it just went all to pot because they stepped in 
and said, oh, you can't do this, you, can't, you haven't done this, you haven't done that right. But we were getting people out of vehicles. We were rescuing people trapped in cars. We, we did, you know, it was a good, it, it is a good unit. But the, the uh, local controller, who is now not a local, well, sorry, we had a local tr- controller and he was, he, he left. We had a, a standing controller from the major town close to us. Um, but he, I went to a meeting and he never appeared. So why have a meeting when you haven't got the controller there? Yeah, I know. It must be frustrating. A lot of frustration there, Keith. I can hear it in your voice and I do understand a, a lot of where you're coming from. Look, also on the line is Ben. Ben, you're an SES controller at the moment, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. How are you finding it? Are you hearing, uh, like what Keith was saying, are you finding some of those frustrations? Uh, fortunately not. Uh, we've got a pretty settled unit. We were very lucky 18 months ago to move into brand new facilities, and I think that's really harmonised our membership group. But we're, we're also coming off some of the busiest years we've ever had mm. in the Dandenong Ranges. So uh, it, it's tough. The other side of thing, getting boots on the ground can be quite difficult. In terms of boots on the ground from volunteers, what are, what are your volunteer numbers like? Who's volunteering? Yeah, we've got a mixture. We've got the, the, the mums and dads who work during the day, and then we've got uh, our retirees who pretty much are the glue that hold everything together that can turn out after hours in the middle of the night and during the, during the day. And there's a lot of pressure on them to, to turn out lots, and that's, that can be quite difficult. Ben, what drew you to it? Um, when I joined nearly 20 years ago, I moved into a new community and I wanted to meet some people. At that stage, I didn't have kids, so I didn't have mums groups and school groups and so on to meet people. Um, so I, I, I suppose followed my dad's footsteps. He was in the CFA many, many moons yeah. ago and I thought, oh, CFA, SES, and my wife's like, you know, because she lived through Black uh, Ash Wednesday, she's like, you're not joining the fire brigade, that's too dangerous. <laughs> so, ben. yes, yes, it was. I love that that community aspect was what drew you. I guess, did you chase them down or did someone come and find you and say, g'day, mate, new to town, are you keen on doing this? No, no, it was literally, uh, I suppose, look them up and went along to a training night and met some people <laughs> and, and I was hooked, yeah. And you were hooked, I love that. The idea of being new to town, Nick Healy, not to put any pressure on you, but no. you're new to Shepparton, did it, I mean, at first, did it, do you, do you think maybe I could volunteer, get to know people? Or did people come to you and say, have you considered volunteering for the SES or for the CFA? No one's come to me. And, and I, I am not finding a volunteer group in Shepparton at the moment. I did quite a bit of volunteering back in Dubbo. Uh, obviously, breakfast radio hours make it a little bit difficult. Sometimes there's training, uh, usually about when I'm ready to go to bed, to be perfectly honest. But um, I look, I found it invaluable. I loved the stuff that I volunteered for. And I am hoping to find some pieces around Shepparton as well. Um, it is an essential mm. way to build up that community. And, I mean, it's been mentioned a few times now, but the idea that it's generational and if we start to lose that, then I think we're kind of in trouble in terms of where you generate those next people to come from because how many people are going to say, oh, here's a cool idea, maybe I should just go and join my local emergency services. But if you've witnessed a parent or a grandparent do it, it's already ingrained into your family way and life. You know, you've seen it happen then it just 
sort of becomes naturally, doesn't it? It should become natural, but we can't let that be the only way. What Ben was saying, and I thought that was really interesting, you know, we're seeing that migration, people moving away from metro areas, coming into new communities. These organisations, all volunteer groups, emergency services or otherwise, I think need to be a little more proactive about chasing down new people and saying, would you like to do this? You're going to be on the back of a truck tomorrow, Nick. Community sport (laughs) does it really, really well. Community sport will tackle you at a bloody supermarket and say you're ready to do some coaching but other groups aren't so good at it michael's in gisborne good morning michael good morning how are you well what do you think are you are, do you volunteer at, uh, for local emergency services i do yes i'm the uh, unit controller of the gisborne ses unit where we've got 70 very dedicated passionate volunteers and how do you get that many good passionate volunteers what are you doing that other clubs or other uh, groups potentially aren't I think we've had some success through the culture of the unit um, where we've been a very inclusive, um, collaborative unit. Um, and, t- and touching on um, what was said before about, you know, family and generational, you know, we've got a few um, family members that have come through from previous generations. Um, and I think we've built a culture that attracts people to come and volunteer and be part of an organisation that can contribute to their community and build a social network in a town. How important is the social network part of it? Because I was really taken aback actually listening to my friend's dad talk the other week about the loss of that social connection and the loss of mentorship and the loss of maybe direction, as Nick was saying, in particular for young men once they hit a, a certain age. I, I think it's I think it's critical. We've got a number of young men in our, um, in our units that are you know, building those relationships and you know, it's through those relationships that they've developed in, in sometimes careers and other opportunities outside of the unit. So, and I think if you go out to regional, you know, Victoria, those social networks are really, really important. We've got some really good success stories in places like Witchy Proof and Robin Vale, where, you know, we've had numbers that have been dwindled down and we've been able to recruit and build those social networks for people in those towns that have created links into other organisations. Good to hear from you, Michael. Thank you. So do you volunteer for your local emergency services and is your community struggling for numbers of volunteers and does that concern you? On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Our numbers dwindling for emergency service volunteers. Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Nick Healy joining you from ABC Shepparton. Jackie sent us this message, Nick, and it says, My son is 17 and has been a CFA junior volunteer since he was 15 and now a senior volunteer. He absolutely loves it and it gives him so much energy for the rest of his life. And I could imagine that if you were a future employer and Mm. you had that Jackie's son has been a volunteer since he was 15, he'd be going to the top of the list, wouldn't he? The volunteerism is an incredibly important element of that. Interesting aspect here from Tex, who's texted in. Thank you, Tex. Uh, In the Yarra Valley, housing prices, short-term accommodation investors, they've pushed out a lot of the people who had traditionally lived there and volunteer. Some of the jobs have gone, so people are travelling further to get to their work. That means they've got less time to actually do that volunteer work that's so essential. It's an interesting angle on it, that changing face of people who live in areas. Dr Faye Bendrup is the Vice Chair of the National SES Volunteers Association. Faye, you have concerns around volunteer numbers at the moment at the, at the SES. What are your concerns? 
Well, Rochelle, it's what everyone's raised so far, I think, so eloquently. And um, Nick's talking about the demands on people's time. We've talked about the demographics of people moving from regional areas or, or to regional areas and how that changes things. People are time poor. They may not have the time now to volunteer. It makes it more and more difficult, added to which if the workload of volunteering or the burden of volunteering becomes too great, it means they're then disengaged or they just can't do it. So, for example, at a national level, we've um, done some surveys and it seems that regular volunteers in the state emergency services put in around nine to ten hours a week volunteering. So that's more than one day's full-time work equivalent. But if you're a leader in your unit, you might be doing the equivalent of three and a half to four days full-time equivalent work for your volunteering. It's enormous demands on your time. And you're fitting that in, of course, around your family, your interests, your work, all the other things as well. And what it ends up being is almost leaders become... Um, they don't have any downtime. They'll be doing their normal jobs, their family, and weekends and nights they'll be working on their SES or emergency volunteering as well. Faye, a the few people thing, have mentioned... Uh, sorry, Faye, just a, a yeah. few people have mentioned how concerned they are about the changes to the amount of red tape, especially paperwork that volunteers are expected to do now. Has that been a big change? It's enormous. The paperwork burden is is really overwhelming, for some of the volunteers who take on that role, but even the, the normal volunteers who are just part of a crew, there's paperwork that has to be done every time you go out on a job. There's all kinds of things that have to be done, and it's something that there could be a solution for. It could be that the agencies themselves support the volunteers more in taking on all mm. of that administration mm. instead of leaving it for the volunteers. But, I mean, that paperwork is essential a lot of the time, as boring and as time-consuming as it is, right? I hate paperwork more than anyone on this planet. But it's there to keep people safe, isn't it? Part of it is to keep people safe, but part of it is sometimes excessive bureaucratic thinking that means, you know, you're giving people jobs to do that they don't really need to do necessarily in terms of safety, and that could be done by someone in an office. So I think there needs to be the, the differentiation between those two types of, um, you know, essential paperwork for safety reasons and other paperwork that's just more bureaucratic. The more bureaucratic work can be handed over to someone else easily and the volunteers can be, you know, they, they can be relieved of, of that, of having to do that. The, I'd like to go back to what Michael raised, though, which is fantastic. Mm. Um, Michael talked about culture, collaboration and inclusion and really, that's one of the things I think that really going to recruit more volunteers and retain them, because it seems that there's not so much a problem of recruitment in emergency volunteering. Lots of people keep putting their hands up, particularly after large scale events, when it's very mm. prominent in the media, it's more difficult to retain them. So the re retention often rests on the leadership within local units, and again, Leader, the leaders are taken from the volunteer ranks and they're not really given any training on how to be a good leader. So it's 
potluck. You know, it's hit and miss. Yeah. If you've come from a background where you've got the experience of leadership and you've ha- you know, had a lot of skills and training, you may well end up having a terrific unit with great culture and everyone has a great experience. But then you'll have other instances, that the same sort of frustrations that Keith was referring to, where things aren't working well and there's no cohesion within the unit and there's differences about how work should be done and so forth. And it becomes um, a bit more tedious for volunteers and they, they lose interest. They become disengaged. Faye, so, just touching and, back I, on the culture side of things, I'm just kind of curious on how deep some of the cultural problems can go. A couple of texts coming in saying, look, I'd, I'd love to see units be a bit more inclusive. Uh, there's a sensation, a sense rather that they're an old boys club and mm. that can scare away new members. And someone else saying that I tried to volunteer when I moved to a large town in Western Victoria. I felt like my not Australian accent was a real barrier there. I didn't feel included. I mean, is this pervasive? Yes, it is, unfortunately. And there's two things there. There's history. So the SES agencies developed uh, from civil defence. So it's come from a quasi-military command and control model. And it's still a command and control model. And that's, in a way, one of the barriers because contemporary society and the way we now work, people are expecting to have a more collaborative approach in a more contemporary way to their work. And so they're they're less inclined to sort of buy into a command and control methodology, particularly sometimes when they see that it doesn't work Mm. well. So, yeah, look, there's lots of issues. I mean, I feel like we only sort of just touched on them, but we've got a full board of calls, so we want to get through those as well. But, Faye, it's been wonderful to speak with you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Rochelle. Thanks for the opportunity. Dr Faye Bendrups there, who's the Vice Chair, National SES Volunteers Association. This text, what would governments do if there were no volunteers? And another touching, Nick, on what you were sort of alluding to before around mm. tourist areas, in particular having tr- trouble attracting volunteers due to the lack of affordable housing. That's a really big issue and lots of people talking about how they try to volunteer but just can't seem to get through ken's in geelong morning ken morning um thanks for taking the call um i'd like to give you an alternative viewpoint so it needs an open mind on this yeah Mm -hmm. um we hear a lot about it from the the localism and the um uh authority impinging on uh volunteer groups the reality is this, and this is a difficult thing, but the world has changed. And as that lady before, Fran, was saying, <sighs> unfortunately, even though they're volunteer groups, and this is not very easy to... In some volunteer groups, there is territorialism. Huh. There, is resistance to, there is resistance to change. Yeah. Um, the classic in Victoria was the CFA versus MFB situation. Yeah. That was a classic. Yeah. And the, and Still unfortunately, going. <laughs> and, and do you know what? The media has a lot to do with this yeah. because they they catastrophize the issue and say it's the volunteers are the ones. It's not all about the volunteering. It's about getting involved with the real world about what needs to be done. And look, that gentleman before that mentioned about the volunteer moving it with the tractor, that was good work. But the reality is these, whilst they're volunteering, the word professional doesn't mean you have to be paid. You have to be professional in your attitudes and your systems. And unfortunately, that's the problem. Ken, is the resistance to change a little bit of a, you know, a few people have talked about the old guard, maybe not younger members coming in. Is it a, a sense that, you know, we've always done it this way, so we never need to do it any other way? That's part of it. The other thing is what the lady preferred is the diversity of the groups, yeah. age, gender, 
culture, race. Yeah. Um, there's not enough diversity, and um, it's, it's not really assisting the community development no. when you have a particular particular demographic that's involved. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we've done programs on the past about some of the, I guess, red tape or the barriers that are put up to you to volunteer in emergency services. And that was because off the back of one of our regular callers and listeners who had spent some time in prison for a, a non-violent related matter, wow. but then tried to volunteer at his local CFA, I think it was, and couldn't. But this is someone who wanted to give back to their community. But speaking of just not wanting to change, there's a text here that says Nick and Rish Technology can also be a factor in making it harder for volunteers. Some still want to use paper and pen for things, but efficiency and organisations now use email, online registrations and banking, shared files, etc. Changing from one technology platform to another is a big deal in an organisation where people are not paid to comply and won't just attend online meetings to learn more. That's from Sarah. A text here saying we're really inclusive in our unit. But our facilities don't have change rooms. That's a big barrier for recruiting women. Of course it is. And some of the older facilities can be a really big barrier for bringing in new volunteers. And there's a few texts talking about, well, it's not just young boys. You know, women need to be inclusive in this as well. And, you know, I'm guilty right at the beginning of that conversation, having this image in my head of who's on the back of a truck at the CFA. You know, there is this awful... with your long locks swinging in the air. (laughs) You'll have to tie it back, Nick. But there is this stereotypical image of who volunteers and it sounds like that definitely needs to change. Stephen Griffin is the Chief Executive Officer of the SES. Stephen, you've been listening to a lot of this. Community members or volunteers are worried that the next disaster, their community may not be safe because there are not enough volunteers. Does this concern you? Well, thanks, uh, Rochelle, and thanks, Nick. It's great discussion, and uh, all those points that have been discussed this morning are very valid. But to go to your point around our volunteer numbers, our volunteer numbers over the years have been fairly steady, around 5,000. They've altered around, you know, 4,900, and we do have churn, but our numbers have pretty much uh, stayed steady over that 10 to to 12-year period. So... But we do have those issues that have been discussed and they're all very interesting uh, and they're all issues that we're trying to tackle. But it is a conversation with the community uh, about what we expect from our volunteers and not only at the SES, but of course our netball footy clubs and our community centres, our driving buses, our meals on wheels. This is a big issue that we need to tackle uh, as a community conversation because we're so reliant on volunteers for our service outcomes in a range of areas, Rochelle. Stephen, how are you engaging that community? How are you starting these discussions about expectations, I guess, on both sides of the volunteering fence? Well, we spend a lot of time with our volunteers. We've just come off a unit controllers conference where these issues are discussed at length. And we've got to keep our ears open to the issues and stresses that uh, our volunteers, and particularly our leaders, face. Uh, and, and that's true, that there's more and more work to be done by volunteers. As we know, over the last few years particularly, and with climate change, the intensity and frequency and duration of events mm. means that our volunteers are called out more and more and for longer periods of time. So that's changed dramatically. And, of course, what we need to do is help them get through that. But it will take concerted effort and more resource to support them and our community needs to have that conversation about what volunteering looks like 
and in our case, particularly in the SES. So what does that look like? We heard earlier um, from the Commissioner, Andrew Crisp, talking about potential incentives that could be used to even just get people to throw their hand up to volunteer. He claims that volunteers don't want to be paid. That's not a part of it. But there could be other incentives. Maybe your rego was paid or there's some kind of incentive that's given to your employer so that you're not in trouble if you need to race off and and, and help someone or, or do something but technically mm-hmm. is supposed to be at work. Do we need to look at real incentives to make it easier? Oh, we certainly do. There's no doubt, as I said before, if we're asking volunteers to do more and for longer periods of time, what we need to do is have a conversation with uh, uh, employers. Uh, they are Employers are very generous. We actually had a uh, discussion with Wilson Security recently, and they're actually uh, in their uh, enterprise agreement and their discussions with staff is saying, we're going to give you and guarantee time to volunteer. Now, that's a big commitment from, from organisations. But we've also got to make sure that people who are self-employed, who are actually volunteering, how do they actually subsidise their wages? We've got to come to terms with how we can help volunteers as their paid employers are looking after them, how we support them. And that is a conversation with federal government probably around tax breaks, incentives, even subsidies in some ways. Now, I know that's another... Uh, hit to the bottom line of the, the of the budget of the government. But if we want the service to be supported by volunteers, which we clearly need, we're going to have to address these sorts of issues and have some really serious discussions around them. Stephen, just bouncing back to some of the comments we've had from people about the culture at the SES, how are you working to make it more inclusive, to make sure that everyone in every community feels like it's something they could volunteer for? Well, we really, uh, Nick, we really push uh, and have driven pretty hard around our volunteer units should look like our community. And we have that very discussion. So if you're in an area like Dandenong where you've got a very diverse community uh, and many community groups, your unit there very much looks like the uh, community that it services. Does it? And we've had the same at Wyndham. Yes, very much so. There are over 17 community groups uh, that are represented in our nationalities, if you like, in our Dandenong unit. So that that really is something that we're striving for. And it's and something that local... needs, to be, needs to be addressed because in times of an emergency, we have to face facts that English is not everybody's first language and that you need to represent the community that you are trying to keep mm-hmm. safe. And if everybody yeah. is just white Anglo, then it's just not going to protect and keep that community safe. Stephen, we're going to have to leave it there because, we, as we said, we're going to try and get through as many calls as possible, but it's been good to get your insights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rochelle. Thank you, Nikki. That's Stephen Griffin, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the SES. This text, it says, another aspect of the nature of emergencies and volunteers is now the SES and the FS at the CFA are great for those single-day incidents that scale up and down quickly, but they're not well-structured to respond to those multi-day campaign-style emergencies, which, Nick, we see more and more of now. This is demonstrated by the recent flooding, says this text, where the SES are the nominated responsible control agency but end up relying heavily on forest fire management. Victoria and their personnel to oversee all of the emergency as it lasted for weeks and weeks and weeks. You cannot ask volunteers to keep putting their hand up for this. You can't. And another text here that said, I rose through the SES ranks and from my perspective... Every unit felt like its own little fiefdom. It was ruled over by controllers who didn't want to see change. Progress and improvement didn't feel welcome at all. 
Trevor's in Murrayville. Hi, Trevor. Morning. What did you want to say? Uh, well, I've been in Savo for more than 57 years. And it's also in Amos for 56 years. Um, the real problem is that different organisations don't want to recognise prior learning. For instance, say if I wouldn't recognise my first aid certificate, even though I drove the ambulance. Um, and then the second thing is that we get plenty of people who want to join up, but by the time we get them through the registration process, because they've changed it all and there's so many hoops to jump through now, mm. they give up. So we need to, everyone's mentioned red tape and it needs to be looked at. Does, does it need to be cut? Trevor, does the red tape need to be cut or does there need to be better support for getting through all these new look forms? No, it needs to be cut because, you know, I, I know people, they're saying it's all for safety reasons. I disagree a lot with this because when we first started in this game, we never had any of this stuff. The real problem is that Fire Brigade now are getting better and better uniforms, better and better trucks. And they're putting people further and further into danger. And that's. What that's made you volunteer for so long, Trevor? You know, you're talking about 56, 57 years that you were a volunteer for the local CFA. What made you volunteer for so long? What was it about it? Well, I'm still volunteering now. Um, it, it, it's <laughs> it's a, to help because the community needs us. We've got two types of CFA. We've got. Community-minded CFA and, and CFA in the bigger cities that do it as a hobby. And, and that's where the real problem's coming. Melbourne's starting to treat the community-minded ones yeah. like, like paid staff. I think you're not alone in that, Trevor, in some of the... I guess the bitterness between regional and metro and between paid and volunteer. Trevor, thank you for your service and the, the service that you continue to give your local community. And he spoke about experience and how, Nick, even though, you know, he had driven an ambulance, his experience wasn't registered, you know, wasn't sort of taken seriously. There's quite a few people talking about this. This says, my husband and I are professionals and we volunteered to give back to the community. We trained outside our local unit and we returned with new ideas regarding efficiency and safety, but the old guard just did not respect change. The attitude put volunteers and the community in danger, says that text. Zoe says, look, if we could just get a paid person allocated to work on a lot of the admin that volunteers shouldn't be doing because they don't have the time to do it, it shouldn't be part of what they have to do, we could change up things a lot. They could even be helping with grants applications and more OHS I've heard a few people suggesting that. Zoe, thank you for getting in touch. Do you volunteer for your local emergency services, whether it be the SES or the CFA? And is your local community struggling for numbers in those areas? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Michelle Hunt and Nick Healy with you. I'm in Melbourne. Nick joins you from Shepparton. This is something we haven't touched on, Nick. This is from Laurie. And it says, are you going to discuss the changing attitude and use of the defence services in regarding to attending natural disasters? And the use of the ADF in natural disasters now, I don't know about you, but it seems like very quickly in a disaster, the local footy ground is set up with ADF tents and they move in 
because they're needed, of course, yeah. but are they needed because numbers are low or are they needed because they're now the first response? But I feel like the ADF gets relied on a lot in natural lot. disasters. The flooding was a big deal recently. I mean, you know, they, they came in and built that Echuca levee bank in, in a very short period of time and, and they were needed for that. That couldn't have been done by anyone else. But the ADF themselves have pushed back against it, saying that, you know, we cannot be there for every emergency. You know, we are the ADF, not the emergency response group. And, does make a lot of sense. Someone's texted in with a bit of a personal uh, little hobby horse of mine saying maybe we could get more more volunteers with a four-day working week. I love the idea of a four-day working week. I really do. We can do a lot of volunteering. We volunteer on the fifth day. Well, one thing that Trevor was touching on is some of that, I guess, argy-bargy and the distaste between metro and regional areas. Brandon Rasmussen is a former SES operations manager in the state's west. Is this something that has concerned you over the past, Brendan, that there's maybe more resources or more focus on city areas as opposed to the to the wrecks. Oh, good morning, Rochelle and Nick. Um, appreciate the opportunity to have a chat and it's been a great discussion so far. So thank you and thank you, the ABC. But yes, um, I have recently resigned as a staff member of the SES because I was quite disillusioned with where the organisation was going, particularly in regards to the regional vis-a-vis Melbourne-centric focus of the organisation, in my opinion. Uh, Please also note that I'm also an ex-volunteer as well. And I have, I suppose, started to stand up a bit because I have considerable concerns, which I think you've been discussing on the program, around the impact that the the dwindling numbers of emergency response volunteers, that includes CFA as well, but the dwindling number of emergency response volunteers we have in the regions... um, is going to impact our collective ability to save people. Brendan. If this is not addressed, then um, I think we're looking at some pretty bad times coming in the future. Brendan, when you're talking about that differential between, say, metro and regional areas, I mean, are we talking about equipment? Are we talking about number of volunteers? Are we talking about the quality of training people can get? What, what is that difference? I think, Nick, all the above. Um, I'd suggest to ABC journalists et al., Come and please look at our facilities in regional Victoria. They're not good. Um, I think I've said in previous, um, or said to previous journalist organisations, in the part of Victoria I ran, we had everything from a 1903 dance hall as an SES unit to council facilities that didn't have change rooms, which I think was mentioned by one of your callers before. To facilities that, you know, in another one of our major regional towns, it's the ex-poultry judging sheds from a regional show. Many of our facilities are simply not up to scratch. And, of course, this has an impact on attracting and retaining members. If your facilities are dreadful... Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's hard. You sort of got this snowball effect where you want to attract new people, but we've heard Mm. so many different issues today from whether it's time management, generationally people aren't volunteering, but then if you don't even have change rooms as well. Brendan, it's been good to hear your thoughts. Thanks so much. Brendan Rasmussen, who's a former SES operations manager. I just want to say about the, I guess, the quality of the facilities that are available. Just down the road from me at Molka, they recently got a, a brand new fire brigade shed just um, opened the other week. It's the first time they'll have kitchen and change room facilities. 
in their entire length of that. And they now have room for two engine bays. It's a very big deal. The community's huge. Nearly half of that small community volunteer at the CFA, but this was a massive upgrade for them just to be able to, you know, make a cup of tea. Hi guys, says this. I'm a member of the Indigo Valley CFA. We have the most registered members in our brigade in the state. For more than 50 years, we've used roadside burn for fire breaks and it was great for training to get people to understand fire behaviour and practice and suppression techniques, but red tape has stopped all of that. That says Sean, so that's something that's concerning Sean. Adam Barnett is the CEO of Volunteer Fire Brigade Victoria. We've been talking about sort of the CFA and the SES hand in hand as sort of very similar entities today, Adam. Are you struggling with volunteer numbers? Yeah, we are. And and look, and good morning, Rochelle and Nick, and fantastic conversation. And uh, look, CFA numbers have dropped quite considerably um, over the last 10 years. There's a variety of reasons for that, but it is something that we are very worried about. And as Stephen was talking about earlier, the demands being placed on emergency services are increasing. Um, so asking less people to do more um, is just not going to be sustainable. Adam, volunteer numbers are, are down right across the board when you talk to uh, volunteer organisations. In yours in particular, what do you think's the additional stress there that's making people not put their hand up? Nick, it's a, it's a good question. People sometimes hide behind the higher vol number drops across the other sector. When we talk about the volunteering sector as a whole, more than 85% is really around physical recreation and religious groups and education. Hmm. Only 5% of the volunteer sector is actually emergency services. So it really comes down to what are the barriers that are preventing. And I, I agree very much with Faye earlier. We don't necessarily have a recruitment issue per se. Hmm. It's a recruitment issue. There's so many people, I've lost track of the, the number of texts we've received around people's qualifications and training just not being recognised. Here's another. My husband was an active member of the New South Wales SES member for many years. He had 25 years of country community, country com, uh, community policing experience as well. He moved to Victoria. He tried to join the Victorian SES, but none of his experience or qualifications were recognised here. He had to do all the training again. It's a long text, but that's sort of the short of it. But that's from Mel in Belgrave. Lots of people are saying a similar thing, Adam. I understand that that red tape has to be there to keep people safe, but it feels like it's also keeping a lot of people out. <laughs> I agree with your earlier caller, Trevor, <laughs> who I think called you out on um, the benefits of some of this paperwork. Look, I red tape of bureaucracy is one of the biggest barriers and, and turn-offs for volunteers. And I've got to say people, and we, we are a people organisation. So when we talk about culture, when we talk about incentives... We're dealing with people. So the same things and, and humans are pretty predictable in this space. We like to follow the path of least resistance. And red tape and bureaucracy that hasn't been explained to people, there's no clear benefit, there's no evidence behind why something was introduced, people aren't going to have a bar of that. And I think that's the problem with the, the incredibly expanding bureaucracy that now sits over emergency services. Volunteers want to help their communities. They want to help people in need. They don't want a whole bunch of rules, regulations that are just giving them a million reasons why they can't do something. Like one of your first callers this morning spoke about, and I think it was Keith, um, volunteers being stopped taking the initiative. And this is why we talk very passionately about if you truly want to respect volunteers, you need to empower them, you need to trust them. And they've earned that trust. So your point around are some of these regulations in place for safety? Most certainly. 
But we've got to put a really hard test on each one of those to say, are they actually delivering the outcome that we think? And if not, remove it. Because if it's just turning people off, if it's creating a barrier to volunteers actually being able to take the initiative and be empowered to help those in need when they need it most, then it's a waste of administrative process. Adam, not to open a new can of worms, but funding. <laughs> it, it, when we talk about funding and volunteer f- services, it feels like you know there's always a cake sale or a raffle mm. or a fundraiser or a car wash mm. all the time. Is that turning people off? Is it concerning in terms of, I guess, the equipment and the training they might be able to receive? Look, some people enjoy the fundraising aspect, but by and large, volunteers aren't joining these organisations to then have to participate in fundraising just to raise money for essential tools and equipment that is naturally provided to a paid workforce. To say to the community, hey, we would like you to be involved in this service provision, but by the way, we're not going to invest in your fire station, we're not going to invest in your fire truck, and we're not going to invest in your equipment. And yes, you're going to give up your time to help us, but we'd also like you to go out and raise some money to buy the equipment that we're not going to fund for you. Just how incredibly disrespectful that situation is to volunteers that we keep trying to run volunteer emergency services on the cheap. Just CFA gets... Yeah, sorry, Rochelle. I was just going to say, sorry, because we do have more people to get through, but just finally, Adam, how do we fix it? Because at, fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's not too dramatic to say, well, potentially people's lives are at risk because we rely on volunteers to help people in times of disaster. And if we don't have those numbers, then that's putting people at grave danger, at risk. So how do we fix it? And how long will it take? Oh, look, uh, and that's a difficult question <laughs> to answer, but I'll start with you start by listening to volunteers and respecting volunteers. I keep saying volunteers are never against change. But you've got to do change with volunteers and not to them. If, if the agencies embraced um, volunteers and actually supported some of these conversations, all the answers are out there. We're just not empowering our people in order to actually put some of these in place. And we keep going to these new, newfangled ideas and a consultant comes out and tells you what you already know. Listen to the people that are on the ground who already have this knowledge and respect them by actually taking their ideas and putting them into action. Adam, we're going to have to leave it there just to get through some more calls, but thank you so very much for your insights this morning. Adam is the CEO of the Volunteer Fire Brigade in Victoria. On the line, John in Ballarat. John, you're a CFA volunteer. Uh, what was it like when you joined? Uh, the the point I was making was that the, um, uh, the length of time in red tape it takes for new recruits, we get new recruits come to our meetings and are very, very keen to join up. But as soon as they find out it's going to take six months to get a police check and probably almost 12 months before they can even get on a truck and do anything with their minimum training, they just walk out the door and we don't see them again. Yeah, I heard that over from my friend's dad as well. It's like, I've got, I got what did he say? I've got blokes that I can't get on the back of a hose and it's just <laughs> ridiculous. It doesn't seem to make any sense. Jamie's called through. Hi, Jamie. You've been waiting patiently. You're an SES controller in the southwest. Welcome. I am, thank you. What did you want to say? Uh, look, the state of volunteer, I've been around for about 30 years now in, in the system. I've seen, seen the SES go from a, a little $500 a year organisation for units. Now we get funded pretty well as a unit. But as a state, they're underfunded or they're mismanaging the, the funds that they are getting. 
Um, our facilities out in the country are, are subpar to our, our city city cousins, and they seem to forget that we exist, and we always get pushed to the back of the line, back of the line. They're building multi-million dollar brand new facilities down in Melbourne, whereas country people, we, we, we're not getting it. And Jamie, is that making it hard to talk to volunteers? Is that making it hard to make a case and say, well, you know, come on, we're oh. looking after you, we need you? Absolutely. Look, we're in a council building. The council have looked after us for years and years, which is greatly appreciated. But the building we're in now does not have change rooms. Okay, so we, we where do how do we track females or other genders into our unit when they come along to the introduction meetings and go, well, where do we get changed? Yeah, because yeah, the, the change rooms has come up. To, I mean, this is the basics. It's just come up time and time again. Let's quickly chat to Melissa Jones. She's the CEO of Blaze Aid, and Blaze Aid is a volunteer organisation that works in times of disaster in, in regional and rural Australia. But they often, Melissa, you often work alongside the SES and the CFA. Has this had an impact on the work that Blaze Aid is doing and the, the sheer numbers of volunteers that you're seeing? Oh, uh, look... Yeah, Rochelle, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, we have, we, we're an organisation who's had 37,000 volunteers through our doors and we really look towards um, working together with communities. So anyone involved in what we're doing, um, we really jump on board with. So, and I think, you know, these conversations have been excellent and thank you for bringing them up. Um, and, you know, tuning people into them. But I think, you know, Blaze Aid really, really takes care and treasures our, volunte- our volunteers all over Australia. And, you know, when they come to a camp, um, they're welcomed with open arms. And we feel, Blaze Aid feels that it's our job to really wrap our arms around our volunteers and, and take care of them. So, you know, we look after them with, you know, three nourishing home-cooked meals every day, um, you know, volunteers are appreciated in every uh, sense of the word and we, we try and build this camaraderie within community and within our camps to really make sure that they're feeling looked after. Look, Melissa, I'll just say, uh, I think Blaze Aid does incredible work. I've spoken to a lot of your volunteers over the years. Do you think emergency services could take a look at the model you mm. use to keep volunteers on board and maybe take a few lessons away? Oh, look, I can't talk uh, to other volunteer organisations. I can say that um, Blaze Aid works with minimal red tape. So, you know, one of our mottos is just come and, you know, you'll come into a camp and, and there's a form to fill out for insurance purposes, obviously. But everything you do is learnt on the job. And, you know, we, we do find that... We have volunteers in camps that have done, you know, 15, 20, 25 of our base camps over the years. So it's, I think it's about um, looking after uh, volunteers. I think it's about making sure that there's connections that are made. So friendships that are built not yeah. only with the farmers that we help, but within the camps. So between volunteers and honestly, they are enduring lifelong um, relationships that go on for years and years. Melissa, thanks so much to you and your team for the work that you do. We appreciate yeah. it. Melissa Jones is the CEO of Blaze Aid. Red tape, it's a term that we hear and use and throw around a lot. It's there because it's meant to keep people safe. But today it feels like it's the thing that is stopping people there. 
has to be a balance because you can't just go out and just whack out a chainsaw anytime you want and do like what my granddad used to do. You'd get the job done, right? But he also was missing half an arm at one point. So, you know, you've got to be careful and safe. But does it stop people from doing it? It, it needs to be there as a barrier towards people being hurt or people getting in trouble. It can't be the barrier to people putting their hand up in the first place. And maybe that does mean greater support from these organisations on making sure that those volunteers can fight their way through that red tape, which, and I will just say this, for some older volunteers can be very frustrating. A lot of red tape is an online process now that is not always the most natural environment to be working your way through. And it seems like there is differences depending on where you live and the size of your community. Here's just one of the hundreds of texts that we got after the last bad fires. A friend and I raised $1,000 for our local CFA in a place that we love to visit. It was for Harrietville. We were surprised at how grateful they were. They took us out to the pub and bought us some drinks and explained how the money was going to be used and the sort of equipment, our money, and how it was going to support them. It opened my eyes to the huge difference of financial and equipment support from CFA to CFA. They seem to have a lovely community that truly loved the abundance of natural beauty around them. So it depends on where you are a lot of the time too, Nick, this sort of support that you get. It majorly does, and another text uh, right up my alley here, create more affordable housing, and I think some of that volunteer problem will go away. There'll be people in the area. Chuck that in at the end. Nick Healy, as always, joining us from ABC Shepparton. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Take care, and we'll speak to you soon.